This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Welcome to Teacher Talk Radio, the podcast that brings you inspiring conversations with educators from around the world. I'm your host, James Chapman, and this is The Late Show. Today's episode, we have two special guests who will try and answer the question, what should you do during your first 100 days as head? This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Wow, what a wonderful sunny day it's been today. Now, I am very excited about tonight's show. We've got two special guests that I'm very excited to talk about. One of them is Emily, who tweeted at the end of the last year. Um, I know we don't do it for them, but to turn the score around from RI to good over these last past few years, despite the challenges, needs to be celebrated. What an amazing school. What a brilliant team and a fantastic children and family supportive community. Couldn't be prouder. And we're going to listen to her in a little bit, just talking about that journey that she's been on and how they have transformed that school, how you brought those staff, family, community and children on board to see your vision and implement it as well. And I know they've been shortlisted for the TES Schools Award. And then following that, we've also got Mark Unwin, who's the CEO of Create Partnership Trust with over 2,600 children and uh, 270 staff in Birmingham. And he started in September and his career is rich, bright. It's been a huge array of uh, jobs that he has done as well. It's going to be a fantastic way to get involved and be part of as well. So we're looking really forward to getting those two on board with tonight's show. So, Without further ado, let's listen to the news for this week while Emily gets on board and listens to our show. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The BBC reported on the high cost of school uniforms. Whilst this is nothing new, the current cost of living crisis has brought the issue back into focus. The charity, The Children's Society, claims in the report that parents are spending an average of £422 a year on secondary and £287 on primary uniforms. 
This is despite rules that were meant to lower the cost. The government commented that it was working to ensure uniform costs are reasonable. The BBC reports that some parents have said that they are having to choose between uniforms and holidays because prices have increased. The Children's Society said it had polled 2,000 parents across the UK and found that parents could be paying an average of £75 for coats and bags, an average of £63 for sports clothing and around £62 for school shoes. Under changes to the Education Act last year, schools in England are meant to be helping cut costs for parents. However, the Children's Society found pupils were still expected to have three to five branded items as part of uniform. Whilst many schools now offer pre-loved uniform to struggling families, parents and charities continue to say that more must be done. FE Week reports on the new NHS Workforce Plan, calling it a fantastic opportunity for the FE sector. In an opinion piece by Robert Halfen, the plan is claimed to put apprenticeships and skills training at the heart of the NHS workforce strategy. The FE sector already offers training for apprenticeships in a range of core healthcare roles, such as dental nurse, healthcare support worker and pharmacy technician. But the new plan seeks to broaden the range and routes into working for the NHS. The government has announced £40 million of funding over the next two years to help eligible providers expand degree apprenticeships. £48 million of funding is also backing the higher technical qualification in healthcare roles. The BBC features concerns about the number of nurseries closing in England, after more than 400 closed in the last year. The sector is blaming chronic underfunding and rising costs. The National Day Nurseries Association said the data raised serious questions about whether there would be enough places to deliver the government's promised expansion of free childcare. In the year to the end of March, the number of nurseries fell from 27,291 to 26,884, with the overall number of places dropping by 3,512. When childminders were included, the overall number of childcare places fell by 24,521. In March's budget, the Chancellor announced the extension of the current scheme offering some families in England 33 hours of childcare per week for three to four-year-olds to cover younger children. The change would be phased in from April next year. Nurseries say the amount of government payment does not cover costs leading to closures for some businesses. A Department of Education spokesperson said that the picture was broadly positive as the decrease in places was only 2% on last year, although it was recognised that there are some local challenges. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk VPN. For those of you thinking, why is Steve talking about an underwear fashion faux pas? A VPN is a virtual private network, and knowing a little bit about them might make you realise you actually need one. What is it? Well, in a nutshell, a VPN changes how internet data is transmitted from a device. It allows the user to be more hidden. I know what you're thinking. I'm no cyber criminal. Why do I want to conceal my data? Well, let's look at three things a VPN can do for you. 
I'm going to use a phone as an example, but all of these can be applied to any device you can put on the internet. Do you use public networks? A public network may be the Wi-Fi on the bus or train, a local coffee shop or fast food restaurant, any connection that isn't your home. Transmitting data on these networks can potentially allow your data to be intercepted by third parties. Having a VPN allows you to encrypt your data from your device rather than depending on the network you're connecting to. So when surfing the web while enjoying a burger and fries, you can be confident if you're being intercepted, the data will be useless to the interceptor. The next is shopping online. When connecting to an online shop, some stores use your location and unique device ID to target you. If you're returning to look at a product, the likelihood is you're gonna buy it. Knowing this, some stores use clever algorithms to increase the price to maximize their profit. With a VPN, you can mask this data so the price you see is the initial price. The third is some streaming services are blocked by internet providers or unavailable from outside of certain countries. If you're using a VPN, you can choose where to set your location to allow you to see the content you wish to stream. I've not looked at individual providers. Some are free, some are paid for. If you're unsure, find a friend who's using one, ask them about it and use the same one as them to begin with. Then you get free tech support. Make sure you know the terms of service. You don't want the VPN you're using keeping your data as that would defeat the object in the first place. As always, don't forget to check out the TT Radio Twitter feed. Tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. Welcome this afternoon, Mark. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thank good you. Day. Good, good, good. The sun's out, isn't it, up there? It's uh, looking good. It is. Just saying, I'm, I'm on the uh, mezzanine level at the... Birmingham Library building, which for anybody that's been to Birmingham, is the um, iconic building with the gold um, sort of um, what looks like gold metal foil uh, funnel on the top of it, uh, looking out on on Library Square. And yeah, it's beautiful. The, the sun's reflecting off the uh, off the the pool thing. There's children running around in uh, in what's in bare feet, getting cool, cooling off in the sun. It's lovely. Yeah, brilliant. Now, today's topic is all about that head start, navigating your first 100 days as head. And particularly in your role as a trust uh, CEO, it's going to be really interesting to get your fascinating insight into what you've learned and actually what you've seen of your colleagues do in schools and the, what works effectively and not so effectively um, from your perspective as well. But I always want to go back to you. So can you introduce yourself um, to everyone and then tell us about your journey through education and how you got to where you are now yep certainly so uh, i'm mark unwin uh, i'm the very proud ceo of create partnership trust and um, we have uh, just shy of three thousand children in uh, four amazing schools primary schools in birmingham um, serving very deprived communities in spark hill spark brook um, hockley and hodge hill um so yeah so i've been in teaching now for um, about as long as I wasn't in teaching. Um, so I came from uh, outside education initially, um, started working for Ralph Lauren when I left university, um, selling clothes, uh, which if the pay was better, I may well still be doing. 
Um, and then I uh, raced in on with AstraZeneca. And then I um, went to work in a very small uh, mobile home shop, which three years later uh, was listed on the uh, alternative investment market, uh, which is attached to the uh, London Stock Exchange uh, and uh, was the biggest orange uh, dealer in the country. So we sold more orange phones than anybody else in the country. Um, and I was uh, the business manager for them. So I used to run all the uh, B2B side of that. So I was about 25. And then I went to be the uh, European product director for the world's biggest distributor of mobile phones, which is um, out of Houston, um, and uh, and then started trading electronics. So um, I spent about 15 years in total uh, before becoming a teacher. Um, involved in the trading of electronics in some way, shape or form. And initially that started off with mobile phones, but they quickly became um, handheld computers and laptops and other electronic items, all sorts of different things. Um, and yeah, working across Europe, absolutely loved it um, and had a, a fantastic time. And then towards the end of that, when I was about 32, um, the electronics business started to flatten out and I was looking for other opportunities. And something else that I might want to do for uh, for the next stage of my career, and uh, I was sat in Duke's ninety two pub in Ca in Castlefield in Manchester, um, and uh, we were talking about what you'd do if you won the lottery, and uh, I said that I'd like to do something that had a bit of moral purpose about it, and I'd like to do something that um, that was pretty absorbing, and um, a friend of mine. Uh, a girl called Kate, who was a uh, year three teacher at a school in Staleybridge, uh, just outside Manchester, um, offered me the opportunity to go in and spend the morning with her. Um, and she said that if I wanted to leave at lunchtime, then all I had to do was buy her lunch. And it was in the days when uh, school uh, teams, teachers uh, and head teacher, deputy head teacher, all used to go to Weatherspoons at lunchtime on a Friday uh, for a curry Friday. Um, and even drink beer. And uh, the bet was that if I wanted to uh, to leave at lunchtime, the deal was if I wanted to leave at lunchtime, then I had to buy Kate um, uh, her curry, her Friday afternoon curry and Weatherspoons. Um, and I never left. I uh, I stayed for the rest of the day and she bought her own curry. I think she bought mine or something. And then um, I went back the next week to volunteer for a bit. And then I went back to do a BGCA. And then I actually got a job there. So I worked for there for two, uh, I worked there for two years um, as an NQT. And then as the maths leader, uh, introducing the national numerous strategy in the second year that I was there. And then I went to London. And uh, so I spent eight years leading schools in London, in uh, Camden, um, and then in uh, Archway, one in Hampstead, which is super, super privileged community and a wonderful experience. Um, and then um, a school in Archway, um, and then for three and a half years as the deputy, and then the acting head of a school called St. Gabriel's, which is on the Churchill Gardens estate um, in Westminster, and then uh, wanted a headship. And I'm from uh, up north, uh, I, you know, from, I was born and raised in Manchester, and I, uh, I came back up north, and I was the head of uh, what was Wilmslow Grange, uh, primary school and is now Hamforth Grange Primary School. Um, I was head there for um, initially, well, four years just as the head. And then um, a guy I know, Tom Quinn, 
and myself set up a trust called the Frank Field Education Trust uh, based out of Liverpool for now Lord Field of Birkenhead, um, which had a vision for social justice through excellence in education. Um, and I was there for, uh, we set that up and that's been going now uh, from, I think, January 2020 all the way through the pandemic. And then uh, I was running Trust in Stoke last year um, as, as something for the DFE. And then I um, took over at Create in September. So I've done the whole gamut in 15 years uh, from a teacher, a subject leader, a senior leader, head, uh, acting head, head, um, executive head, school improvement partner, deputy CEO, and now CEO. So it's been, it's been amazing. And I'll yeah. I was going to say a very diverse set of jobs you've had there. Um, kind of want to go back to that 15 years you had before education. What's that? something you've learned there that's helped you as a leader in education? Because a lot of the ECTs and PGCs I work with have always been in education. And I think from where I work, um, and I work sometimes with the central team and looking at the digital side across our trust, we can learn things from business and our schools aren't businesses, but in some ways we've got to run them like businesses and be efficient. So yeah. what's been your takeaway from that side of the world that's transformed yeah. you? Yeah, huge takeaways and actually enormous crossovers. And I feel really privileged to have done it. Um, and so I suppose three things I would say. Um, one that's really practical um, for and, it's, and this is such a shame, I think, that, um, for for schools. But the uh, company based out of Houston that I worked for um, was, a, I think at the time, it was about a $7 billion company um, in terms of turnover. Um, uh, yeah, huge organization in terms of the amount of money it made. Um, and they really invested in their staff. And one of the big investments they made was in terms of the organization of of your own personal organization. So anybody that knows me knows the way that I sort of organize myself. And it goes back to some training I had when I was about 24 um, with a company out of Sweden called Time System. And those that are long in the tooth like me remember these very, very expensive filofax. It's effective, you know, essentially a filofax uh, with these little um, concentric squares on the front. And this was in, in business at the time. That was the sort of mark that um, that somebody had invested some time in your in your um, CPD. And um, it was amazing that the quality of the training, I can still remember most of the training I had, I think it was four days long, and it was primarily just to do with how you organize yourself, how you organize your team, how you delegate, and how you record all that, and how you keep on top of, of a huge task list. Um, and I still use it today. So my, um, you know, I, I've thinned it down now, and, I, you know, out of the planner that I use, it's exactly the same system that I used then. So that I think that's fascinating. Um, and so many teachers, especially young teachers and ECTs, um, it, it would be so good to be able to invest in their organization because it has a massive positive knock-on effect in terms of my well-being. So 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 in terms of my well-being, I once I became a teacher, I didn't really used to take a huge amount home. But it was, wasn't because I wasn't doing it. It was primarily because the organizational structures that I've got allow me to do it in the time that I've got to do it. And also to an extent, allow me to put it to one side and then leave it and come back to it as well. So I think I think that was a massive takeaway. The second thing 
is, and maybe the second and third thing are linked together, but the second thing was that particularly the company out of America had the, and actually all of them, especially because they were new embryonic companies, they were very entrepreneurial. They had very, very, very flat leadership structures. So there was almost, there was no barrier between the, you know, somebody that worked in the warehouse or somebody that worked on one of the sales teams or somebody that worked on one of the finance teams and, and the MD and, and being able to have access to, uh, leaders, um, at any time of the day and being able to, to, um, be on the same level as talk to and have relationships with people that were running, you know, massive multinational organizations. Um, that really stuck with me that, that actually having an open door policy, making sure that there's no barriers, there's no hierarchy as much as possible, that everything's a network. Um, that was, that was a huge takeaway. And I think the third, and I've talked about this on Twitter a lot, and sometimes, you know, it's not always, I know it's not, I don't know everybody doesn't share the same opinion, but it comes from that time is the importance of giving power. And I mean, real power to people that need that power, irrespective of how young or inexperienced they are and trusting people to do the job that they're able to do. And what I mean by that is we, we, um, we, we're based out of a business unit in Trafford Park in Manchester near, near Old Trafford. Um, and I think at one point we were the most productive company in the UK because we turned over 450 million pound and there was only 42 of us in the building. And that was because at 25 or 26, I had a line sign off of about 2 million quid and the age wasn't a barrier at all. The fact that I, you know, in another company, I wouldn't even have been off the sales team, but the, if you were good enough, you were old enough and they trusted people to do the job. And I've always tried to do that in teaching and I know that's not everybody's view and in secondary I know that's definitely not everybody's view but certainly in primary I think that there's real power in uh, spotting talent early and giving people the opportunity to experience um, a sense of authority to experience making mistakes and experience of taking some risks um, and and particularly an experience of making um, whole school change irrespective of how old you are or how experienced you are. And, and I think, you know, we really try and do that. Um, I do think it's easier at primary than secretary, but that, those are the three things I would say I probably took away from. There's probably loads more actually, but those are the three I can think. And I think going back to your point Lee, about that flat leadership and the open door policy, um, I've seen schools where the leadership then is bombarded by all those things. So if you contract that by giving the power to the people who need it, you actually are, yeah. you've got your principles then. You, you go back to yeah. what are your principles, a good leadership and what I want my school to be. What's that culture? And actually people yes. can take ownership. And if they don't get it right, that's fine. We will work way through it yeah. and do that. So go and back. That, and that was, that's part of the culture, isn't it? That people mm -hmm. aren't, you know, that, that there's no fear of failure there as well. Um, I think business does that largely really well, especially businesses that are set up to make a lot of money. They, they largely do that well because they ex, they understand that there will be failures as, as well as there'll be successes that you know that, that that's part of the process sometimes in education we lose sight of that because of our moral purpose don't we we lose sight of the fact that you know you're going to have nearly as many um you know things go wrong as, as things go right but as long as you learn from that and you develop over time then that's okay yeah and it's, it makes me think about these are the things we've always done it this way and actually it's challenging yeah. that as a core thing so take that back, like 
so you've been in all of these roles. So imagine you're new to headship or you're going to a new head and you may have some yeah. prior experience. How then do you kind of go and assess those strengths and weaknesses of that new school? And then what's that balance between watching and then enacting and making changes? Because I always find that's quite a difficult one. And I've seen successes. I've seen failures. But I've also seen um, conversations about the pressures of Ofsted as well in terms of that balancing that. So what are your thoughts in that regard? And I, well, I, I think the thing it makes me think of initially is the different structures of trusts and and actually what roles you're undertaking when you go in and, and, and do that watching piece or that, you know, uh, because it's very different in different roles, isn't it? So um, you don't quite often get asked, you know, if you're new to headship, for instance, you know, what what should you be doing in your first 100 days? And I, I, I always say, you know, as little as possible or nothing and ideally nothing, because actually the um, temptation is always to make change in order to appear busy or to appear, um, you know, to be making a difference or earning your money. And actually that often isn't the right way to 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 behave and actually it's only with time and a bit of wisdom and experience that you understand that actually that 50 days in particular the first 50 days won't actually make the the great big massive huge difference that you think it's going to make and and that's something i've had to my uh, my acting headship came at a strange time for the school that had gone from outstanding to special measures um and then and similarly, one of the skills I took over early in my career, you know, there was a, a real driving pressure probably from Ofsted, from the governing body and others to basically make changes quite rapidly, the local authority to make changes quite rapidly. Um, but I think as the longer I've done this now, the more it's worthwhile resisting that temptation. And um, and I, I personally always use a 50 working day rule. And that's, that's the same, but, you know, the last three trusts I've been at, is if you sit and watch for 50 working days, um, you know, 10 working weeks in, you've got a picture of what's, you know, what what can be, you know, what can be changed. And it's and during that period of time, it's absolutely about meeting everybody and it's about listening. And increasingly now, um, I think it's about meeting everybody and listening. And and I, I, I really, you know, somebody that I value hugely, Dane Francis Cairncross, who was one of the directors at, at FET, um, who's an absolute inspiration. Um, she was absolutely clear that, you know, the more of that that can be done over food or in a, you know, or in a social setting, actually it's three or four or five times more valuable to do it that way. People um, uh, relax and, and people tell you uh, what you need to know and, and, and a more convivial setting. So um, increasingly that sort of thing, uh, watching, listening, building relationships and really trying to participate in some active listening and ideally trying to participate in some active listening over a couple of deals and food um, where people um, feel in a more relaxed setting um, because we don't always appreciate, do we, the perception that other people have of us. And whilst we think that we're not threatening and, and collegiate, by the nature of the fact that you're in there, that's not always the case. And, and you have to be appreciative of that. So I suppose the first thing is it depends who, what you're doing. So if you're a new head, that's very different than if you're going in as a school improvement partner. He's very different if you're going in as an executive head. He's very different if you're going in in some sort of capacity at trust level, um, you know, or, or as a CEO, I suppose, as well. So, 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 and I don't, I'm probably not going to go into each of the details of it, but it is very different. The one thing I would say 
is I think you've got to have some really strong guiding principles that are transferable from school to school. And we talk about this a lot at Create. So Create, when I joined in September, um, uh, you know, really strong foundations as trust. Trust me, going from 2016, uh, you know, was left a really, uh, you know, strong foundations by the former CEO. Um, and in terms of the finance, financial structure, in terms of central team, who I love, in terms of the leadership teams of all the four schools are absolutely brilliant. Um, so, you know, really positive position in that respect. Um, and I think that they, but the trust had formed out of a school and so many trusts don't they form out of, um, and, and your listeners can't see this, but I keep making this sort of steeple shape with my hand where, you know, you'll get basically like almost like the educational firmament and then one school sort of ri rises out of the firmament by virtue of good leadership or great results or because it does something a little bit differently from others and then that gets backed in some way, shape or form. It might be through London Challenge or Birmingham Challenge or it might be through um, having a charismatic leader or it might be through the DFE signposting people to it and it raises up a little bit further and then it might become a teaching school or a teaching school hub, or it might be recognized in some way nationally. And then it enters into some sort of partnership or federation arrangement or support arrangement with another school. And they, they fall into this trust structure underneath the first school. And then it becomes a multi-academy trust. And then other schools come in alongside that. And, and, and I think that's very natural, but as a second generation CEO, um, who doesn't have that baggage, who doesn't have that relationship over time, um, that sees things in a different like by virtue of the fact that I wasn't involved in the process of setting it up, I think. Um, I think there's a real opportunity there for trust to become something completely different. And at Create, we've really pivoted that structure, flattened it back out, and said that the trust is the foundation on which great leaders can build great schools. And I think that I passionately believe that great leaders do make great schools, but I think sometimes the nature of trust can stymie that or they can 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 do the opposite to what it, what the effect it's trying to have because it removes agency from the very people that you want to have agency. And, and if you go back to my analogy about the, um, or the story about the, the, um, electronics company the, in Houston, um, their whole mission was to give that agency to the people that needed that agency and devolve that power to the people that needed that power to have the most effect. Well, that's the same in schools, isn't it? And, and too often trust structures remove that agency from their head teachers. But there's, there needs to be quality assurance and there needs to be, um, uh, you know, a, a solid view of how things are going. And I would say that solid view, need, you need to have that quality assurance for governance, but you also need to have it so that you can put in place really effective support to actually help the school rather than within a trust structure whereby you're doing that in some sort of punitive way. I think there's a way of doing it I think at Create, we're showing there's a way of doing it, which is actually in a really, really supportive way so we can get out of the way as quickly as possible, but we can help in the mean in the interim period. And, and I think the only way you can do that is by having a set of guiding principles that are agnostic of, um, of approach. And what I mean by that, so for instance, you might have a set of guiding principles around phonics, for instance, that is just around... Uh, fidelity to uh, fidelity to the chosen phonics scheme, rather than having an approach which says across a multi-academy trust, for instance, that everybody has to have the same phonics scheme, and it create um, uh, three of our schools use read writing. One uses little wondle by virtue of the fact that they were part of a, of a teaching hub, and 
I don't think there's any tension there because if you have a set of guiding principles around fidelity to the phonics program, training for the staff on phonics, um, ensuring that the outcomes are great, um, making sure that the experience that the children have in their phonics programs really support and making sure that the interventions are appropriate and, and all those sort of things, that if you've got a set of guiding principles that are agnostic of a particular approach, then I think it's far, far more powerful. So as, as you know, my, my you know, passion is, is around curriculum development. Um, and I've got a set of guiding principles around curriculum development that I like that. I don't really care whether you're using cornerstones or you're using focus or you're using something that you've done yourself or something that's just a load of schemes stitched together. Um, it doesn't really matter. It's about having you got a really clear sequence in place that is reflective of the actual amount of time that you've got to teach in. Is there a really well-defined body of knowledge that you're trying to teach? Is there... Uh, has that body of knowledge been sequenced into the particular lessons that you're going to teach? You're really clear to the teachers on the ground exactly what they're supposed to be teaching in the lesson and what the children are supposed to be knowing at the end of it. Um, has the school, if it's got an approach towards being vocabulary rich, has it done the same for vocabulary to make sure that um, the children are getting a, you know, a strong um, background in vocabulary to help them for the rest of their life? And then is there a suggestion in terms of how the teacher might teach that? But is there also freedom and flexibility to teach it in a different way because the outcome is the important thing? Um, and is there some sort of assessment for learning going on so that the uh, teacher knows whether all the children have learned that body of knowledge uh, at the end of each lesson and over time? Is there overlearning in place so that they don't uh, forget it over time? Um, and is there appropriate CPD for the staff and coaching for the subject, you know, subject leaders or subject champions to ensure that they're able to verbalize that? And is there a quality assurance system in place to, to underpin the whole thing to make sure it works? Well, you can do that. Because I've got that set of guiding principles in my head, or I've actually got it in a computer, but it, if you've got those set of guiding principles, then it doesn't matter if you're using cornerstones or focus, or you're using something that you've knocked together out for 15 different things, or something you've written yourself, or or a load of schemes, because you, you're working at a level above that and saying, this is what best practice looks like, are all those elements in place? And if they're not in place, which bits of them do we need to do a bit of work on in order to put them in place? And, and, and I think too often, in education, we get sucked into the appro favoured approach, and that and that can be the whole traditional progressive thing as well. Is I, you know, as a teacher, you're quite good, aren't you? So you come out of the firmament of being a teacher, and somebody recognises your talent, so you go up. So this is the same as the trust structure, isn't it? So you get promoted, and you're you might get on a podcast <laughs> or or you know you get asked to write a blog, or you become famous on Twitter or whatever. And then your reputation goes up and you earn more money and you end up in a situation where you're judging other people in some way or quality assurance of other people's work. And you have to divorce yourself from the things that made you successful as a teacher in the first place. And that takes a load of time. I do think that's the bit that takes time and takes wisdom and time and takes experience because it's really, really difficult not to think, well, I would do it like that. And that's the work for me. That's the worst sort of quality assurance. Quality assurance has to be completely subjective and and not at all objective yeah and it resonates with a lot of work i've been doing across our trust in terms of digital education at the moment because i go back to what are those principles yeah. of good teaching and learning and this is the right thing yeah. for the right time now but it goes back to your one of your points earlier you made it's given power they so you know what those principles yeah. are of what good teaching and learning is those leaders do yeah. you're talking the same language you're building something together yeah. And things change, things evolve, new research comes out, but actually those mm -hmm. principles will adapt slightly, but actually the approaches you do to them 
they're the yeah so i resonates heavily with me it's time for a fresh start to language learning Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The BBC reported on the high cost of school uniforms. Whilst this is nothing new, the current cost of living crisis has brought the issue back into focus. The charity, The Children's Society, claims in the report that parents are spending an average of £422 a year on secondary and £287 on primary uniforms. This is despite rules that were meant to lower the cost. The government commented that it was working to ensure uniform costs are reasonable. The BBC reports that some parents have said that they are having to choose between uniforms and holidays because prices have increased. The Children's Society said it had polled 2,000 parents across the UK and found that parents could be paying an average of £75 for coats and bags, an average of £63 for sports clothing and around £62 for school shoes. Under changes to the Education Act last year, schools in England are meant to be helping cut costs for parents. However, the Children's Society found pupils were still expected to have three to five branded items as part of uniform. Whilst many schools now offer pre-loved uniform to struggling families, parents and charities continue to say that more must be done. FE Week reports on the new NHS Workforce Plan, calling it a fantastic opportunity for the FE sector. In an opinion piece by Robert Halfen, the plan is claimed to put apprenticeships and skills training at the heart of the NHS workforce strategy. The FE sector already offers training for apprenticeships in a range of core healthcare roles, such as dental nurse, healthcare support worker and pharmacy technician. But the new plan seeks to broaden the range and routes into working for the NHS. The government has announced £40 million of funding over the next two years to help eligible providers expand degree apprenticeships. £48 million of funding is also backing the higher technical qualification in healthcare roles. The BBC features concerns about the number of nurseries closing in England, after more than 400 closed in the last year. The sector is blaming chronic underfunding and rising costs. The National Day Nurseries Association said the data raised serious questions about whether there would be enough places to deliver the government's promised expansion of free childcare. In the year to the end of March, the number of nurseries fell from 27,291 to 26,884, with the overall number of places dropping by 3,512. When childminders were included, the overall number of childcare places fell by 24,521. In March's budget, the Chancellor announced the extension of the current scheme 
offering some families in England 33 hours of childcare per week for three to four-year-olds to cover younger children. The change would be phased in from April next year. Nurseries say the amount of government payment does not cover costs leading to closures for some businesses. A Department of Education spokesperson said that the picture was broadly positive, as the decrease in places was only 2% on last year, although it was recognised that there are some local challenges. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk VPN. For those of you thinking, why is Steve talking about an underwear fashion faux pas? A VPN is a virtual private network, and knowing a little bit about them might make you realise you actually need one. What is it? Well, in a nutshell, a VPN changes how internet data is transmitted from a device. It allows the user to be more hidden. I know what you're thinking. I'm no cyber criminal. Why do I want to conceal my data? Well, let's look at three things a VPN can do for you. I'm going to use a phone as an example, but all of these can be applied to any device you can put on the internet. Do you use public networks? A public network may be the Wi-Fi on the bus or train, a local coffee shop or fast food restaurant, any connection that isn't your home. Transmitting data on these networks can potentially allow your data to be intercepted by third parties. Having a VPN allows you to encrypt your data from your device rather than depending on the network you're connecting to. So, when surfing the web while enjoying a burger and fries, you can be confident if you're being intercepted, the data will be useless to the interceptor. The next is shopping online. When connecting to an online shop, some stores use your location and unique device ID to target you. If you're returning to look at a product, the likelihood is you're going to buy it. Knowing this, some stores use clever algorithms to increase the price to maximize their profit. With a VPN, you can mask this data so the price you see is the initial price. The third is some streaming services are blocked by internet providers or unavailable from outside of certain countries. If you're using a VPN, you can choose where to set your location to allow you to see the content you wish to stream. I've not looked at individual providers. Some are free, some are paid for. If you're unsure, find a friend who's using one, ask them about it and use the same one as them to begin with. Then you get free tech support. Make sure you know the terms of service. You don't want the VPN you're using keeping your data as that would defeat the object in the first place. As always, don't forget to check out the TT Radio Twitter feed. Tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. Yeah, we're talking a lot about this school culture. Culture is a huge element through expectations, through behaviour. What are some of the strategies you've employed to develop that culture within a school? Or maybe you've gone into headship or acting and your role is and you've seen actually there needs to be a big shift here what are yeah. some of those practical um things that you would suggest to other heads that say okay i've watched for 50 days what can i start doing now to really change the culture and it's not necessarily just pupils it's the staff and it's the parents as well mm-hmm. in that process as well so what are your practical tips to create that positive culture I, I think the number one for me always is 
and it's an overused phrase and i'm trying to i'm trying to think of another way of saying it without using it because i don't like it but i do think that people oh, there's a better way of saying it i do think that everything is more powerful if it's co-developed i was going to say buy-in right i don't think it's about buy-in at all i think that's the wrong word i think it's about spending the time at the beginning doing the really really hard work of co-development and people shy away from co-development for i think for two main reasons probably others but for two main reasons one is it's quicker to do it yourself and sometimes you have a desired outcome in your head and you want to make sure that that desired outcome happens um, and i think the second reason is co-development is quite uncomfortable often because it it ultimately relies on a little bit of conflict and it has to be really carefully managed and about a really clear intent in the first place. And I'm not mad on this whole intent implementation impact thing from Ofsted, but it is quite neat sometimes in terms of describing stuff. And I think regardless of what you're talking about, if you can co-develop the approach from the ground up, why are we trying to do it? And, you know, what is the... You know, why are we trying to do it and what we're going to do and, and, and how we're going to do it, then you can actually it's miles more powerful spending that time at the beginning. And I'm just thinking back to the last, I think of it in a leadership capacity and, or school improvement capacity. I think it's like 15, 14, 15 schools now in some way, shape or form. And I think the last seven maybe really tried to do really good co-development at the beginning. And sometimes we've got it right and sometimes we've got it less right. But I think really really carefully trying to spend and the time and do the hard yards at the beginning and it is hard yards and i've been in schools where it's been a really difficult process because people have either not wanted to do it in the first place or not seen the value of doing it or not liked the tension that comes from it of saying well why are you doing it like that why don't we do it like this why don't we do it like this why don't we do it like that and actually i think the most powerful ones i've ever been in are the ones where actually it's pretty much everybody the whole staff doing it if, if you've got time, my, my favourite my favorite example, I, uh, I, I took over at uh, what was Wilmslow Grange, now Hanforth Grange, which is a brilliant school and, and super staff team. And um, I remember being in a staff meeting really early on and I'd said, we're going to co-develop a, a teaching and learning policy right from the start. We're going to do the whole thing. We're going to write it. We did the 50 days. And I said at the end of it, I said, we don't really have an approach. We don't really have any commonality. It was a mixed age school. And I was really sort of morally bothered about the fact that a year one child in one classroom was being taught a completely different thing in a completely different way from a year one child in a different classroom. It was a bit like, we decide whether that child goes on that side of the wall or the other side of the wall. It's probably on us to make sure that they have a common experience between the two. And uh, and the staff, I think, well, they certainly came with me on the, on the ride. I, I don't know how much they agreed or disagreed at the start. I think they sort of rolled their eyes and thought, oh, here we go. But, but they definitely came along with me on the ride. And um, I remember, I think we laid 10 staff meetings aside and any new head, I would say that's a good way of doing it. Watch for 50 days and then grab the first 10 staff meetings after that 50 days, because you'll need the time to, to spend with people because it'll take you a lot longer than you think it's going to learn. And if, it, if you can do it quickly, you're not doing it properly. And then, um, so we, we had a staff meeting and I think we started with maths. We did about three or four staff meetings on how we wanted to do maths and everybody brought their ideas and we kicked them about and we came and we, we literally went through every comma and every paragraph that we wrote together as a staff team. Um, and we came up with an approach to math. And then I think the next one was, uh, writing. It was writing and we wanted to put a structure in place for writing and it involved 
I'd just been reading Bounds by Matthew Side and, it, and, and Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. And I'd, 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 I'd sort of talked them through it. It was before the days of book clubs and all that stuff. And, uh, and I sort of talked them through like what, what they said and, and the idea of having inspiration at the start of, uh, of uh, an ignition opportunities at the start of learning. So we built this three-week structure. We put ignition at the start of it. Um, and then we and we wanted to have purpose. So we had beginning, middle and end days. And then we wanted to um, give context. So we had publishing days in it. Anyway, I said to the staff, right, we've got all the days. What do we want to do on these other days? And somebody said, oh, we want to do editing on one day. And I thought, oh, I bet you do. But actually, it was one of the best best lessons we did. Um, and then and they said, oh, we want to teach children to play. Then I went, oh, right, okay. Well, yeah, that's an important skill. Okay, so we'll, next week we'll do, a, we'll do a staff meeting on our planning lessons. How are we going to do planning lessons across the school? So I went away for a week. And I'm a big advocate of uh, a guy that nobody remembers called Alan Pete. And Alan Pete's approach to writing, I, I, all my, I, virtually all my success is based on Alan, Alan Pete's approach to writing. In fact, my whole life is pretty much based on the simplicity of Alan's uh, approach to uh, writing and everything else. Um, and he, um, so I had this big file and I, I've got it already. And, and Alan had this approach to planning and uh, I'd got that and I got something else. I think I'd got some Pi Corbett stuff around and I got that together. And I went into this staff meeting with these two big ring binders under my arms and I plonked them down on the floor. I said, right, okay, we're going to do we're going to do our approach to planning. So before we start, I just wanted to take you. And then this hand went up at the back of the room. And I went, just just one second. I'm just going to take you through Alan Pete's approach to planning. And the hand stayed up. And she, I don't think she'll be right. Maybe say there's a, a teacher who uh, is still at Anvil, uh, Suzanne. And uh, and she said, uh, we don't need this staff meeting. So I was like, oh, um, I thought we were doing planning. She's like, no, it's all right. We've decided. So I was like, oh, oh, have we? She was like, yeah, yeah, no, we all got together this week because we know that you'd like to co-produce this stuff and we're allowed to make decisions. So uh, we all got together this week and we decided uh, we're going to use uh, Sue Palmer. So, and, oh, well, I've got Alan Pete stuff. She went, no, you don't need to tell us about Alan Pete stuff because we're going to do Sue Palmer. It's like, who's Sue Palmer? So she goes in a cupboard in the classroom and she's got this massive big book, the Sue Palmer's big book, and it had loads and loads of different uh, planning formats for different genres of writing and i'll be honest i looked at it and i thought that's not alan pete stuff i want to do alan pete stuff and i had and she and she sat there she was near the back she's great suzanne and she's like really good with me as well and she manages me really well and she went are we allowed to make decisions or not and it was one of those pivotal moments probably in my career and i looked at her and there was like about a five second pause while i thought well are they or not because i really want to do this alan pete stuff but they really want to do this superman stuff and in the end, I went, all right, sweet, we'll do the Sue Palmer stuff. And we did it for three years, and the school was celebrated for writing and recognized for, for writing. And it was entirely based on Sue Palmer's planning documentation. And me, Alan, me, Alan Pete folder went back in the cupboard and never came back out again. And then and then three years later, they developed a different way of doing it for, for neurodiverse children, which was to do with planning widgets and and they changed the whole structure to, to to base it on that. And I think there's a really interesting lesson in that, isn't it? Is are you really co-producing it or really you're just steering it so they do the thing that you want to do? Um, and it's really important. If you can and the decisions are sound, then it's really important that you give people the power to, to make good decisions. I often relate it to being a conductor. You've got all your musicians, yeah. say you've got your first chair, a violin, you've all of those and it's that aspect okay are you conducting and which path are you taking them down what genre are you go in with that as well 
You brought up a um, thing about you're always going to have staff who may not be on board and you may have to have those difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things as a head, especially if you've been in education, you may not have had to have those difficult conversations. And it links back to that quality assurance about holding people accountable. Have you had a difficult conversation um, with staff before who haven't been able, who haven't bought in in some ways to your way? Um, and what tips would you give people as well? Because it is a it is a hard job. It is a profession where hearts and souls are into it compared to other professions. I make generalizations, but yeah, it's it's yeah. different than normal. Yeah, it does, and it has that. It's driven by that moral purpose, isn't it? And that's what makes it. I imagine health is. I don't know much about health, but I, I'm guessing health has, has some of the same challenges. Um, because it's driven by moral purpose and it's about children, then of course it's, it's emotive, isn't it? And also I think the really good part of it that we're losing is that actually it's quite an opinionated profession as well. And at its best, it's an opinionated profession. But I think we're losing that a little bit, although you wouldn't know that from Twitter sometimes. Um, but I think, you know, to largely, I, I'm not sure that that's necessary. I'm, I do some work with UB, uh, with with students uh, as a UBT for Manchester Net. And um, and I'm not sure that that's necessarily always the case anymore, which is a shame. Anyway, um, yeah, of course, you're going to have people that agree or disagree. And, and, and ultimately, you're going to have people that, um, that do it or don't do it. I do think that the biggest single powerful thing that you can always do, and the biggest thing, single thing that works, is to be what and I do in the first place and not like just the why a bit because the why is nice in it but I'm, I, uh, I, we're having a conference today across the trust and Amjad Ali is speaking and uh, and Amjad's just been relating a story saying you know 10 years ago all CP was CBD was just like we're doing it for the teacher we're doing it for the children we're doing it for the children we're doing it for the children and that led us down some difficult paths in terms of well-being and workload because if you're doing it for the children then you'll always do more and how much as a profession we probably now have to do it for ourselves as well as the children or just do it for ourselves and the children will follow from that and so i think it's about transparency so if you've got a good set of guiding principles in your head that you're working for you can't have difficult conversations i don't even like the phrase difficult conversations anyway but if you can't have conversations unless you've been utterly transparent about those guiding principles. And I don't think you can have conversations based on those guiding principles until you've had lots and lots and lots of conversations about those guiding principles before it gets difficult because it takes people time to learn stuff and change stuff and see the value of stuff. And sometimes what you're asking them to do doesn't work. And sometimes you have to change as well. So, and I think increasingly, you know, within our trust and in my professional position, it's actually not difficult conversations as in you have to do this. It's like difficult conversations as in this is what is expected of us. And I'll be honest, primarily by Ofsted. And if that's the case, how do we do that? And where it's not working, how do we help a bit more to make it work? How do we help a bit more to make it work? How do we help a bit more? How do we help a bit more? How do we help a bit more? And then somewhere down the line, you hope it wouldn't, but somewhere down the line, you might end up in a situation of having to be like, look, we tried so much here and it's still not working. You know, I mean, what is it that's getting in the way of that? And that becomes quite difficult. So I don't think I really, 
buy into so much the that difficult conversation idea of you're supposed to be doing this and you're not doing it why are you not doing it because i don't think really that's what drives people primarily i think 90 percent of the time it's because people actually don't know why or what they're supposed to be doing and that's primarily on you not on them because you've not been transparent enough and and if i might digress this is Ofsted all over isn't it like the fact that there are training materials for hmis and Ofsted for additional inspectors that we can't see is ridiculous and the fact that there is a set of expectations wrapped up in the eir which feels like only a certain few or only a you know only an experienced you know cadre of the profession understand how to interpret that that's ridiculous because every new head teacher for me and if, you know, if there is a change of government, I would hope that they would try to address this in some way, shape or form, is every new head teacher should go into a school. Every senior leader should go into a school. Every teacher that works in a school should know what the expectation is, not be being judged based on things that they can't see because that's not subjective for me. I know they would say that the EIF is subjective and I get it, it is, but it's not being interpreted in a subjective way. It's being interpreted too often in an objective way. And that's what leads to sometimes, you know, variability between inspections and variability to between schools and inspection results. So I think as, as senior leaders, as head teachers, as trust leaders, we have to be utterly transparent about what we're expecting and why we're doing now, what we're expecting to be done. And then we have to expect it to not go well for a long period of time before we get anywhere near such a, you know, difficult conversations. And the thing is that clarity of your communication, a lot of things fail because you can't, you don't communicate it in the clearest possible way, or even you yourself yeah. don't know what those guiding principles are. Yeah. And I think there can be overcomplicated, and that's with the communication, you can give too much details. So it's drip feeding it. And I think we do all this research about how we teach children. Do we actually do the same for our professional development? Is it a rounded approach as well? And I think that's a core element as well. You brought up well-being earlier, and I think that's a really key bit at the moment. Heads, often, it can be seen quite as a lonely job. It's somewhere where you are at the top of that school. You've you've got a lot of things on your plate. You're trying to balance people's emotions um, with the budget and with new things coming in. What are your tips for heads? You gave about productivity earlier um, and that came up in my mpqh the other week someone's like we don't want to know how do you organize your days what's the best way what have you found what planner have you found yeah. and all of that kind of thing but what are your what are your some other tips to help with that well-being element yeah I, I i think for me and it comes back to that thing at the beginning about leadership structures and it comes back to i'm, I'm a sort of a, I'm a bit of a structure obsessive and and i think so much of it does come back to that because actually in a hierarchy, it is an incredibly lonely job. And for me, the best way to deal with that is to get rid of the hierarchy. So as, as much as possible to build a leadership team around yourself as a teacher that is diverse and wide as you possibly can get it, uh, because that will be your support network. And that's the same at trust level as well. And I'm really lucky. I, I took over in September. Um, there was... Uh, the former CEO had um, had basically uh, organized it so that it was ready to, the central team was ready to grow. Um, and I was able to bring on two fantastic deputy CEOs. I've got uh, Chris Dyson, um, who 
um, came from Parklands and, and largely brings a wealth of education experience. And then a deputy CEO called Kieran Bithal, who came over from, he was on secondment to the trust as a COO a little while back, and, uh, and but from the Department for Education. Um, and they, their roles overlap quite strongly, but largely Kieran Moore works with the central team and Chris Moore works on the educational side, but they overlap and work really well together. And that's really important for me and my well-being because I suppose being a CEO could probably be an incredibly lonely job, but it's not because I've got my team around me and my central team are absolutely fantastic. And we we spend a lot of time uh, working on those relationships and, and, and making sure that we spend time together. And I think that's the same in schools, isn't it? Is too often the head teacher's door is closed or it's an intimidating door to open and the head teacher doesn't want to put on other people and therefore does a lot themselves when actually other people are, in my experience, are really happy to help and want to be brought into the process and want to feel part of a team. And actually you can build a really wide, uh, diverse leadership team and that helps your well-being as much as it helps their well-being and their careers as well. So it's a sort of positive two-way relationship. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing, I'll be honest, I didn't know anything about until I started at Create, um, but as come from Chris, which is the amount of network groups that there are out there. I, I, I had no idea that these network groups existed, um, but um, and, and you'll know the names of, of some of them uh, better than I, but there's like Heads Rest and there's, there's uh, Head Teacher Support Groups and, and, um, and some fantastic networking organizations that work in various different ways. Some of them work um, in a, a, you know, virtually, and some of them they meet up and go on like sort of, uh, you know, sort of weekend things. And um, and I think that is a really positive development, probably come from COVID, but a really positive development for the profession that there are those uh, support networks out there. And that didn't exist when I first started headship. And to be honest, I didn't know about it until about six months ago. So I think that's, a. I would definitely urge any uh, head teacher to be part of that. And the other thing I think, being a head teacher, especially when you start off, you almost feel like you have to have, be given permission to do stuff. And sometimes you get a really good mentor from the local authority or from a trust or some, or from uh, so a mentor from somewhere. And they push you out of your comfort zone and get you involved in other stuff. And that other stuff that you get involved in is often the really, is the stuff that helps with your well-being. So I've been really fortunate in my career that people have, you know, sort of bent me here and said, oh, come and can we give Zambra this? Come like, and I remember there's a guy called Andy Hodgkinson, who's now um, one of the people running uh, uh, some of the programs out at the Institute of Education at UCL. And he uh, he grabbed me really early on in my career. He's a head in Cheshire East, where I used to work. And uh, and he grabbed me really early on and he was like, oh, I've got this project called the Emotionally Healthy Schools Project. And I think uh, there's a few of us in it. And uh, why don't you come down and, and, you know, sit in one of the meetings and and it was brilliant. It was like, you know, we did some really good work. We raised some good money. We had a really positive impact on children across Cheshire East on their mental health and well-being. But I think it was better than that because it, it had a really positive impact on me. And, and actually, I don't think my school got a huge amount out of it, to be honest, but I got an enormous amount out of it because I got time to spend thinking about doing other things and I met some really cool people and, and some cool things came out of it tangentially later on. And I, I would urge any new head teacher not to be too scared to like jump in with both feet. And and Andy, funnily enough, I've, I've seen him again recently. And he says he's now working with CEOs primarily as part of the Institute. And he said, how often do CEOs ask for permission to do things? And he said, the whole point of being a CEO is that you don't ask for permission. The title is it's in itself is permission to 
go and knock on the door of the CEO of Tesco's or to go and knock on the door of the CEO of Iceland or to go and knock on the door of the MP and demand their time. And I think in, in education, I don't think we're very good at that until we've been doing it a long time. And I think I would urge anybody that's new to just, what's the worst that can happen? They can say no. And, and I'm learning that well, every day from Chris, particularly, who's absolutely brilliant at knocking on people's doors and asking them for things. And nine times out of 10, people want to help and they want people, they want you to be involved. So I would, you know, I know it's a scary thing to do to inject yourself into a situation, but I would urge people to try and do that. Uh, that's really good. I think I've got one more question um, to kind of summarize up what we said. Would you recommend being ahead of anyone? Oh, Why? Absolutely. Why? In a heartbeat. In a, it's the best job in the world. It's genuinely the best job in the world. I think, and I'll caveat this in a minute, yeah, because it's also the loneliest and it's also the hardest and it's also the most awful. And I, know, and I get all that too. And, and I'm not just, I, I'm not saying that just blithely at all. But I think two things. I think, was it Winston Churchill? I don't know if this quote is true, but I, I like to think it's true, even if it's not true. I think it was Winston Churchill said that the Prime Minister's not yet been imbued with the power of the, of the head teacher of a, of a local authority primary school or something like that. Uh, and the two most powerful positions, I don't know if any of this is true, but I always think it's true, but the two most powerful positions in the civil service are the, the captain of a nuclear-powered submarine and the head teacher of a local primary school. I don't know if that's true either, but I think it is. Uh, I remember there was a woman called Liz Wolverson who was absolutely amazing, who was the, um, she was the director of education, I think, or assistant director of education for the London Diocese and Board for Schools. So she ran about 190 schools in the capital. Um, they were all incredibly high performing. And I remember her saying to me once, she said, and I'm not, I'm not going to do the impression, but she basically said, I said something and she said, never forget, Mark, that uh, the entire power of the crowd delegated through the Secretary of State and on appointment by the governing body to the head teacher to use entirely as he or she sees fit. And I was a bit like, and I sat there, and she said it like really quickly. And I was like, I sat there and took it in for a minute. And I was like, wow, yeah, that's that. I mean, with great power comes great responsibility, but equally, wow, what a privilege to have that amount of responsibility and that, that ability to make such a change in society. And and I think that I, for me, that's one of the reasons it's one of the most amazing jobs in the world, because there aren't that many that are like it, I don't think. And, and so that's the first reason. The second reason, and having had a perspective outside education, and I do, you know, I'm still interested in, in business, but I think ultimately when I got home at the end of the day, I mean, traded electronics or, or whatever, there was no end product. There was just money. And money's great. And people are shouting probably at the podcast going, I want more money. And I'm sure we all want more money. But money after about 15 years, you realize that that's a bit empty. And it's great, and it buys you a nice lifestyle and all the rest of it. But if you can earn a good wage, and I think, you know, notwithstanding the current um, industrial action, which is absolutely correct, um, that notwithstanding that, and I think, you know, the very, very, very strong case that the the wages need to increase over time as well, not just this year or next year, but on a, on a continuing path to bring them back to where they were 10 years ago. Um, but notwithstanding that, it's a profession where you can be, uh, you know, paid at the level that you're paid at. That you can have the status in society that you can have, and I know that goes up and down, and we're not necessarily seen by society always in a positive light. But let's hope that's on a positive trajectory over the next ten years 
especially as a change of government. But I, I think the most important thing is if you, you can have, you know, pay status, but you can also have um, moral purpose. And at the end of the day, you know, you're doing good for society. That in itself is worth something. And I think having done both, I would, uh, it's definitely better to have moral purpose and it's definitely better to have an end product at the end of it. And, and if that end product is better children or better prepared children or children with happier lives, then that is worth something. And and I suppose that's why I would say it is the best job in the world. Or, you know, for sure, it's it's also super, super difficult and it's getting more and more difficult by the day. Uh, and we need to do something about that because otherwise it'll be unsustainable and people wanna, won't want to do it and they won't understand how brilliant it is. Oh, thank you. I think it's been a fascinating conversation. I know I've learned a lot um, and look forward to seeing what you continue to do in your rich and varied career to date, Mark. So thank you very much for coming on. And now with us, we've got Emily. Now, I know earlier she tweeted, um, there's a little bit way back now, that what an amazing school, brilliant team, fantastic children and family and a supportive community. She couldn't be prouder of her school. But before we go into that, how are you this evening, Emily? I'm good. Thank you so much for your patience this evening while I uh, dealt with all my technical difficulties. Oh, don't worry, don't worry. I, I work with tech all day, uh, <laughs> in and out, and I still hate using it at different times. So don't worry, I know how you feel with that. Um, before we go into your school's journey, because I think a lot of this is about you as a person, as a leader, I kind of go want to ask you this question. And I, I've stolen this question of diary of a CEO. I said, what's your purpose? What inspired you to work in education? Right. So I have been a um, primary head. I'm a primary head teacher of primary school in um, Morton on the Wirral. Um, absolutely love it. One form entry primary school, community primary school. I've been in education now for 20 years. I've been a leader for 10 years. Um, in my current school, I've been in there for six years. Um, absolutely love it. Passionate about early years. I used to be an early years advisory and consultant. Absolutely love that. Passion for send and inclusion school improvement curriculum it started off funnily enough i wanted to be an air hostess um, but i'm really sure anyone who's met me realizes when i take my heels off i am tiny <laughs> so there is no way i could have been an air hostess so um i went abroad worked abroad because i love travel um i decided to be a children's um rep came home after a couple of gap years thinking um i'll put off university for a little bit longer didn't want to do it forever um, and decided then to go to university. I actually wanted to be a secondary um, secondary school English teacher. So I went off to do an English degree, um, but soon decided that I wanted to work with primary school. I wanted to make a difference. Any work that I was doing, yeah, I loved holidays and I loved working abroad and I loved being with the children. But knowing that you're making a difference, I think that's what you go into this job for. And I think when I'd been in teaching for a while, um, I got really interested in school development. Um, I worked with students. I was a student mentor. I loved seeing their journey. I loved helping them develop and flourish. Then I started working with NQTs and started to help develop them in the rural partnership and beyond that. 
and then I started doing the advisory role for, with early years. I've always loved investing in people and seeing them flourish. Um, and that's something that I'm still very, very passionate about now is investing in the future of education and working with my staff, seeing them flourish, seeing the children in school thriving and also supporting our families and communities. So let's go back to your headship um, when you first came on. What were some of those key challenges then that when you first came in and how did you deal with them? Did you have to sit back, watch, listen, or were there things straight away you were like, no, right, we're going to change this um, to try and help move that school forward? Yeah, I think this is an interesting one. I, I was speaking to my leadership team about this this afternoon because um, you go in to a school with an agenda and I'd been head of school and I'd been acting head teacher um, in other schools before I got this post. And I'd always said, I'm going to sit back, I'm going to relax, I'm going to reflect, I'm going to listen, I'm going to take it all in. Um, had an amazing two inset days where I introduced myself um, you know, set my stall out basically saying that I'm reflective, I'm open, I'm authentic, I'm transparent, I'm here to listen. Um, we know that you've got to build that trust, build that credibility, get the acceptance of your team, get the acceptance of your staff, get everyone on board, get everyone kind of buying into your vision. And that does take a while. So my vision was for my first 100 days, really, to sit back and let people get to love me. <laughs> and you know build that trust and build those relationships and get that sense of belonging um I had lovely two inset days inset in the morning um really kind of like reviving everyone and sharing this vision that we're in it with for the children and then the afternoon sessions I had open door sessions and just said I'm in my office and um, if you want to book in a time slot to speak more privately with me you can do or if you just want to pop in and um, you know there's tea and biscuits and just pop in and let's let's just have a chat um, and it was it was wonderful lots of staff came in and said you know I'm really settled here I don't like change I'm really nervous people were really honest with me some people came in and said, I don't want you to change anything. Some some pe people came in and said, you know, I'm worried about this. How's this going to look? And I said, at the time, I can't, I can't give you any answers. You know, it's going to develop together. It's going to be really fluid. Then the children came in the next day and I looked out onto the playground and the gates were open from half past seven. And to me, it just felt like, oh my goodness, okay, I need to establish a bit of safeguarding procedures, a bit of, um, I have to gain control of this. So the idea is that you don't want to step in too soon, but in terms of the statutory things and making sure that things are in place and children are safe and you feel content, I do think that there is some things when you go in as a new head that you do have to have an understanding of. I think safeguarding is a main one to make sure that you're happy with the policies and procedures and that everything is in place. And, you know, my first thought when was, let's get to that single central record let's make sure that everything in terms of statutory the website and and all those statutory things were all in place and um, so i felt a bit more secure so i could sit back and and look and learn but i still think that is really really important i think actively working on building relationships being visible in those first 100 days being out in the community finding out what's happening working with the families, building the trust up of our families, um, working with the children, being visible on the gates in the morning to meet and greet, being on hand 
if staff need to speak to you. It is exhausting at first because you make yourself so available to everybody. But I think it's really important to get to know everyone when you first start. Lots of observing, lots of just sitting back and taking it all in. Lots of listening, lots of active listening, really getting to the, the crux of kind of how the school works, how everyone feels. Um, asking lots of questions, having that curiosity, like I wonder why, I wonder if. Um, I'm a big one for journaling, so I kept a reflective journal all the way through. So just looking back on that now and just reading through and a lot of pages were just like lists and lists of questions of things that I was like, what is this? Need to find out more about this and how do I approach this? And, and having that in my head was really key. When I work with new heads now, I often say to them, um, go in and be curious. Don't be judgmental. Leave your baggage at the door. It's really important that you don't go in and take over. And I say this now as a head who've been there for six years. If somebody came into my school now with me being head for six years, they would find fault immediately. No one is perfect. You always have things to do on your to-do list. I know that somebody would come in and take over from me as a new head and be I'd be quite judgmental and oh, this hasn't happened or is this isn't my way. So I think you have to go in, leave your baggage at the door, be curious, but don't be judgmental. Don't be looking to blame if things aren't in place. If standards aren't great, you know, I took over a school and there was a three year decline of our of our statutory data. So it did make me concerned when I took over and I knew that there was some work to do around embedding um, knowledge rich curriculum. There were things that we needed to work on, but it wasn't going in as a judgment. It wasn't going in as a blame game. It was going in and getting everyone's buy-in so we could start looking at real quality school improvement. That's fascinating. And a lot of those things you've said about the safeguarding and it's almost setting up those foundations so you can get that buy-in. So one of the things I want to like a little dive a little bit deeper into is how did you establish that vision? How did you get the buy-in and how did you get everyone almost to change their behaviours towards the safeguarding, but also towards that vision you had for your school in those early days of your headship? I think the key thing is always bringing it back to the children. I think anyone who goes into education, anyone working in education has the child at heart. So I think as long as you keep bringing your vision back to it's for the children, it's for the best for our children, it's for the best for our community, it's for the best for our school and being quite transparent with the decisions that you're making and um, having those open conversations and those dialogues. Um, I've got a new deputy head more recently and in our first SLT meeting he said it's refreshing that you come to come to a meeting and you haven't got the answers. That's refreshing and I said that's good leadership <laughs> because you shouldn't, it should be a consultation, you should be um, consulting with everyone that you work with and I think that that is key when you have your vision you share that vision, you share your rationale, you talk to people about the why you're doing things and pulling it back to the why we do really helps people drive it forward together. If they kind of get on board and they can see the value of what we're doing, it makes it so much easier to drive it forward together. Um, a lot of work with the staff, like I say, having an open door policy, having open, honest and transparent conversations with staff. Some of them were quite uncomfortable. Staff were brutally honest with me at the beginning <laughs> um, and families were as well. But that's what I asked for. I think it's really, really important that um, we don't have our guards up, we don't have our barriers up, that we are reflective as practitioners as well, that we don't have all the answers and we need to listen to people. I said to one of the one of the parents when I started, 
this is your school you know at the moment i am a guest in your school i'm getting to learn about your community i'm getting to know about your children i'm getting to know about the families um, it's an absolute privilege and it's an honor um, but while i'm learning please be patient with me and showing that humility to families really put them on the back foot and made them feel like oh okay right let's give her a chance and when they see that the children are thriving and the children are, are loving school they think well let's let's make this um something to celebrate and we were laughing again this afternoon talking about it was in the march time we had an easter celebration we went down to church and i stepped out of church got got all the school settled and um we got the children up on stage ready to perform i stepped outside of church just to check that all everyone had come in and was about to close the doors before we started and one of the grandparents was outside on on the stairs and she came over and said Ia, are you the head teacher and I said, yeah, I am. She said, yeah. Do you know what? I get it. And I was like, get what? It's like when you started, miss. We all hated you. <laughs> I was like, I'm really sorry. I had no idea you hated me. <laughs> but that's a good thing. I always say if you're doing, if you're doing your job well, you're not going to be popular all the time. But I think then reflecting on that, um, it was about speaking with parents and finding out from them so we set up parent class reps after that so we um had parents vote for a representative from their year group who would meet with me every half term and it'd just be quite informal just a coffee and a chat and um, but i would say to them you have to tell me something positive we always start with something positive something that's going well and then something specifically from your year group that you would like to see improved in school and it was a way of building up those relationships having those key people who could talk to me in school and I could bounce ideas off them. Um, we have terrible curtains in school, I'm not going to lie. I, I always tell this story about the school hall curtains. They are bright red and they've got um, knights on horseback and they're, they're bonkers. The curtains are bonkers and they don't match with our kind of like low stimulus, low arousal, beautiful, neutral school. But the curtains have a value one of the parents said in that meeting you can change anything you want miss don't change the uniform don't change the curtains and i was like the curtains how bizarre these red crazy bonkers curtains she didn't want them changing but in year it's this the school's over 80 years old and in years gone by the parents and grandparents all had their class photos in front of these curtains on the stage so in their houses they have you know generational photographs of their their school photos in front of the the curtains and it's a silly thing but it always makes me think back to the things that matters to matter to our families and our communities make a difference and it made a difference to them to feel heard and and feel listened to and valued that yeah i didn't change the curtains i had to have them fireproofed it cost about two thousand pounds <laughs> but the oh curtains are still there <laughs> i have to admit that was one of the first things i heard when you talk about the curtains it's like it just made me go back to my school uniform as a primary school. I was yellow, yellow polos and brown jumpers, which is the worst uniform ever. Um, yeah, and it's it's pretty, it's amazing to see what what's that that the parents associate with your school, and because you're coming from an education point of view, you're coming from within the school, um, or if you're new to the school as a head, you're coming with a different perspective as well. You, you don't sometimes realize all of these different perceptions and what they think as well. And that making sure you're actively learning and listening is really important. So you're listening to everyone and bringing them on your journey and making those sacrifices like, okay, we'll keep the curtains, let's get them right. But 
we're do X, Y, and Z. Go back to your principles of what it works. I want to go back to this one thing about um, any regrets. Have you got any regrets in your first kind of year or so as a head or things that didn't work? And then what did you do about it? And how did you make sure you were self-aware um, of that situation as well? Yeah, I think um, it's about choosing your battles to begin with, because things are a battle when when you're new, when you're introducing change. Um, change can make people feel quite anxious. It can make staff feel quite anxious. It can make parents feel quite anxious. Um, they're, they're quite wary anyway. They don't know you. Who are you? You're coming into their school. You're coming in with all your newfangled ideas, trying to change things. So change can be quite overwhelming and quite daunting for people. So um, I think it is, I always say, choose your battles because I went in and was like, Stand, standards are standards are low standards need to be addressed um we're we're raising the bar here um expectations um children being in school attendance punctuality um uniform so i thought uniform is a great place to start let's get the children smart and mean in business you know let's get some routines established and um, sent out a newsletter after meeting with the parent class reps saying, you know, we are, we're not going to change the school uniform, but there is a uniform and we do expect, you know, we have high expectations and high standards for our children and we expect them to be well presented when they come to school. No trainers, full uniform, uh, no jewellery, um, girls to have their hair tied back neatly um, and boys to have sensible haircuts. Well, that was one of the worst things that I ever put in a newsletter <laughs> because it was then a battle. It was like, oh, right okay fair enough we'll send them in uniform but the boys are all going to have hair bubbles in <laughs> it's like how can you misread that okay i get it it was it was girls must have their hair tied back why why do girls just have their hair tied back boys can have their hair tied back if they want to and it was one of those things where you go oh my goodness it's a it's such a small thing but there were so many parent complaints about that and it was short-sighted, but it wasn't about that. It was about being told what to do and being fearful of change. Um, but having that difficult conversation then with parents and and them sending the boys in with like um, little tiny bubbles all around the front of their hair. And, you know, the boys being embarrassed, but like wanting, not wanting to lose face and the parents not wanting to lose face, no one wanting to back down. So in the end, we just had like a crazy hair day. And I was like, do you know what? I'm just going to embrace this. I'm going to come in with crazy hair. I'm going to turn it into a bit of a joke and let's just get over this. <laughs> but sometimes it is, you know, going in with the right things at the right time, sharing the rationale and how you communicate it as well. I think for our parents to see that on a newsletter, it felt like I was judging them for, um, you know, for their uniform standards and other things. And they, they did take it quite personally. So I do say, prioritize um choose your battles and listen listen to the um listen to the families be open with them be available listen to feedback be able to be reflective have conversations with them um but it is also seeing the humor i think a lot of what i do is is based on humor we use the pace approach in school by dan hughes and it always starts with playful um so it's playful acceptance curiosity and empathy and that's how we that's our behavior approach in school that we always approach it with that playful approach when children are regulated then that acceptance the curiosity and empathy but it's also how we treat each other and um treat our families that we are playful we're light-hearted like oh, it, it's okay you know we'll make a bit of a joke about it and 
I let them know I can laugh laugh at myself as well. You know, I did put that about hair. And then I came in the next day and we didn't have sensible hair. And we all had crazy hair and we all had a good laugh. And just for them to see the human in you and see that you're authentic as well. I think that that did really help. So, yeah, I think that was the one of, one of the things that I learned was learn to laugh at yourself, reflect on decisions that you've made. Um, if you have made mistakes, always apologise. That always takes people off guard. And um, when parents come in and they're absolutely furious, sometimes I say, look, it's my responsibility. I'm head teacher of this school. Um, I'm sorry that that's happened. I'm sorry that you're upset. You shouldn't come into school. You know, you entrust us with your children. You shouldn't be afraid. You shouldn't be worried. You shouldn't be anxious. It is our responsibility and apologise because you're not above apologising. You don't have all the answers. And I think that's something you've got to be confident in yourself as well, don't you? You've got to be no, be really self-aware that you're trying to do the best for your children, but also bringing those parents in sometimes will solve nine out of ten issues. They, there's a lot of keyboard warriors out there, especially in this age of social media. But if you bring them in and a lot, there's a lot of them just miscommunication. They just got the wrong end stick. And yes, you may have made mistakes, but actually working on it together is something that is a collaboration. School is a community at the end of the day. And I think with COVID, we've realized actually the school isn't just four walls. It's everyone involved and we're bringing parents back in. We're having that. And people are scared of change. Um, And we've always got to be changed. It doesn't matter if we are doing really well in our results, something's going to change. The the world evolves. We find new things. Let's make sure that we do evolve with it. But it goes back to those principles as you were alluding to. Listen to everything and see where you can go with that. kind of want to go back into your point that you said about Mm buy-in. So what are some of the tangible things you've done to try and get staff buy-in? So safeguarding, yes, you've you've got to follow the letter of the law with things like that. But in terms of curriculum or in terms of um, schemes and other bits and pieces, how do you get staff to feel like they've got ownership of it and it's not some, it's something done with them rather than done to them as a head? Yeah, I think um, my, my go-to phrase is always let the teachers teach. My job is to set the expectations, to share the vision, Um, to offer them high quality CPD, to develop them, um, to be a learning school. I often say to give them the wings and let them fly and be an excellent role model and, you know, leading by example, but being sensible as well with workload and being nurturing, making school a safe place, psychologically safe and a a physically safe place for everyone, including my staff. Um, I want my staff to feel listened to. We have a coaching culture at school. Um, so it's kind of non-judgmental. There's no kind of like formal lesson observations, book scrutinies, um, learning walks. Um, I want to value my staff. I always say, you know, I, I have appointed you. You've been to university. You've studied. You've got your degree. You've been through the hoops. Um, I have to allow you to teach. I have to make the... Um, you know, the ground ready for you to grow. Basically, I have to put everything in place so you can do what you're employed to do. Um, so there is a real focus on being sensible around workload um, developing a very nurturing culture for our staff. Um, we don't have marking. We take PPA at home. Um, I say that my staff have earned autonomy. <laughs> Everyone has autonomy and um, they're trusted to do their jobs. 
Um, but obviously that has to be earned. If, the, if there is a concern, sometimes we may have to step in and, and give them a bit more scaffolding until they can, you know, just rise ahead with their autonomy. A lot of the things that we do around kind of well-being and workload, it's not tokenistic. It's not kind of full fat Friday, cakes in the staff room, everyone pile in. It's not one-offs. It's around a culture of having those clear expectations, letting them know that they're invested in, letting them know that they're valued um, and offering that high quality CPD, that bespoke CPD, that it's not performance management. We don't manage people's performance. We help people to develop. Um, we we do that through coaching. We have performance development plans. We have a staff CPD library in my office. Um, we model that through good, um, you know, we are good role models for that as leaders. I'm uh, working my way very slowly, I have to say, through my master's, um, but always learning together, learning with the children, learning from each other and um, peer-to-peer support. Um, developing future leaders as well. And I always say not to be selfish with my staff. Um, I love to hang on to my staff. We invest a lot in them, a lot of high quality CPD, lots of opportunities through the partnership work that we do through um, Liverpool Hope University, ADHD Foundation, Early Excellence in Huddersfield. We get lots of opportunities for our staff to have these opportunities due to their MPQs. Two of our teaching assistants have done their degrees so it's given people an opportunity to grow. But with that, you give them the wings and they fly. So just last year, we um, lost four members of staff. One went off to work um, in a consultancy role for the local authority. Another one went off to School Improvement Liverpool to work as an early years consultant. And two more went on to deputy headship. So you do give your staff the wings to fly. But as a leader, you think about the greater good, you think about sharing that good practice beyond your school. So I think when staff can see that and they they can see that they're valued, they can see that they have opportunities. Every year we offer, offer between two and three TLR3 um, projects, which are time limited projects linked to the school development plan. And um, obviously you get you get paid for doing the additional work it gives people a taster of leadership and then some people have used that and gone on to leadership roles within other schools um, and different opportunities but some people do it and say you know it's lovely to have that experience and that little bit of extra money this year for the work and recognition of the work that I've done but that's not something that I want to do moving forward so it is really about believing in your staff allowing them to do their job let the teachers teach and just providing a psychologically safe and a, you know, an, an environment where people can thrive. Can you build on this idea of coaching? So a lot of schools have taken up coaching um, and you were talking about the idea of la- allowing your teachers to thrive. And I think that's a really key bit. But how have you interweaved coaching with like staff meetings and professional developers at whole school to make sure that you don't focus on too many different things and you're working on the specific things to, that will make a difference. Because I, I work across a lot of schools in our trust and I talk to a lot of schools in my other roles and bits and pieces. And traditionally, professional development is, oh, we do a bit of this or we do a bit of that. And it's almost going back to the old units that we used to do in maths and the numeracy strategy. And we don't do anything in depth. And I think from my experience, that's where you can't get long lasting change. You don't get teachers owning it. You don't get that 
okay, let's play with what does this look like in my school? I can't actually take it on and suggest changes to make sure it works as well. So how does that coaching and professional development look in your school and what have you, what benefits have you seen from it as well? Yeah, I think everything comes back to that, the school development planning, I think taking it, stripping it right, right back, looking at the performance indicators, what is everything telling us? What is the data telling us? Hard data, soft data, feedback from children, feedback from families, feedback from staff. How are we using those performance indicators then to make an accurate self-assessment of our school? Like, where are we currently? Let's evaluate where we are currently and let's plan for what we're going to really focus on next year. And I completely agree with you. If you do too much, you don't do enough well. Um, there is a, there is a possibility of saying everything's a priority. If everything's a priority, nothing becomes a priority. priority. So looking at the school development plan and stripping it back, I work quite heavily on a, just a rule of three, just three, just three things, three things to remember during this meeting, three things to focus on in this lesson, three things to really focus on in terms of school development. And then people aren't overwhelmed. And the main priority, the number one priority out of the three things that's on the school development plan is um, going to be everyone's priority. So in your school development, um, your, their personal development plan, everyone has the same priority number one and that helps us to really drive forward standards and really unpick what success looks like if we all do this and everyone plays the part in leading one area in school so this this year for example it's been reading and everyone had a part to play within that even you know the finance um officer the school caretaker everyone had a role to play within raising the profile of reading and in improving the outcomes for reading across school and though when you've really really focused and you're doing something and everyone understands the rationale and you get the buy-in from all of your staff and they can see the progress and it's broken down into small manageable chunks and it's um you know you build in reflection time within that it doesn't become tokenistic it's not like a staff meeting for staff meeting's sake everyone can see how that leads into the whole school development planning and I think that's where coaching's helped. Um, I started um, being coached around eight years ago. Um, I'm really, really passionate about coaching. I think it develops so many other skills, um, you know, about being reflective, asking questions. Um, I'm a firm believer on not rescuing people. And um, when we first introduced coaching, that was the first thing that we did was, um, as leaders, we will not rescue you anymore. I know it seems really, really cruel, um, but if we tell you what to do, you'll do it and if it doesn't go well you can come back and say well I did what you told me to do it didn't go well I'm not taking any ownership of it it's all on you whereas if people are coached into coming up with their own ideas and their own solutions and they have ownership over things they're more likely to put those things into place so the coaching culture started with leadership really that came from a passion that I had around coaching and being coached then our leadership team and how we worked in developing our teams so that it wasn't oh everyone comes to me and everyone wants an answer no everyone comes to me which is great and we can talk things through but do you know what we're going to train more of us who are able to facilitate who are able to offer people um you know opportunities to discuss and be heard and work through and become their own problem solvers so that they feel empowered to do their jobs because if they're feeling that, oh, I'll need to check with Emily or I'll, I'll need to check with a member of SLT, it's quite demoralizing not being able to make your own decisions. So coaching is really, really powerful for that. I know it's really 
features heavily in the new ECT model. Um, and that's been brilliant to see. And then through the MPQSLs that um, my leadership team have been having, my middle leaders, it helps them to see the purpose of coaching and how that really helps to drive standards forward and empowers you to make those decisions. It's helped within the classroom as well, because with coaching, you develop your listening skills, um, reducing the cognitive load, listening, asking purposeful questions. Um, I often say that coaching is just a conversation with a purpose, right? That's okay. I'm here to listen. Um, you know, you talk, I'll listen, we can work through it together and then we'll, we'll meet up again. So it is more about a culture rather than a tokenistic. And I know when new staff joined me, they said, oh, I did this in my last school. We had somebody in, they did a staff meeting and it never really took off. And I can get that because if it wasn't done in terms of a coaching culture, if it was something that was done to them, you, you don't get the buy-in from your staff. And I wrote two words down, being self-aware and then empowering others. And I think that kind of sums up what you were saying at that point and i think it's a common theme and it's a heart a lot of it is i i find pride of seeing others thrive on something you've instigated or you've given them and they're confident or if they get something wrong they know actually what to do about it as well and i think that for me as a leader is a thing that i thrive off rather than oh here i've got to do everything because i know best or i can do it quicker it's actually giving that power to others and seeing their potential or giving them time to see that potential as well. I want to go back to one tangible thing. And I think as an as an NQT, as we were, but um, now ECTs, you often have that first teaching day and you you live that over in your head. What's my first day going to be? And you're, you think about it, you have sleepless nights about it. So as a head, what would you do on your first TED day? What's your first message you would give to staff? As, as a first head? Yeah. Um, I think give giving staff so much of you, letting them know you as a real person. I'm not, I'm not a figurehead. Um, I'm not, I'm not the expert. Um, I'm the leader of a school. I'm not a manager. I'm not here to manage you. Um, I'm here to lead and develop you. I'm authentic. I'm real. I'll listen. Um, and I think that being personable and not trying to pretend to be someone else because people can see through that straight away, but have that reflection time on your own to realize who am I as a leader? What kind of leader am I? Um, what is my vision? What is my value? What are my key principles? What, what is my why? What's my driver? If you know that and you have confidence in that, it, it shines out of you. Um, it's it's who you are. Another key phrase that my staff will know that I use all the time is you make the weather. Um, and, you know, more recently when I've been coached more recently, my coach says it to me all the time as well. It's that you make the weather. If you go in and you're stormy and there's a storm cloud around you, I know that spreads my staff then see me in the corridor and they're like in corridors saying, oh my goodness, have you seen Emily today? She's really grumpy. Do you think it's something I've done? Blah, blah, blah. They go in the classroom, they're on edge. That makes them nervous around the children. The children pick up on that. Then the children go home. They've had a bad day. And then the parents, it's that you can make that. That is one person you do make the weather. If you go in and you're uplifting and you're empowering and you're listening and you're positive, that spreads 
like wildfire and it is beautiful to see. Um, so always remembering your why, your drivers, being authentic and just remembering you do make the weather. <laughs> I'm just nodding along here. It's brilliant to hear from you. So my penultimate question then, um, what's that one piece of advice you would give a new head? Enjoy every minute. I know it's a bit cliche, but I genuinely believe it is the best job in the world. Um, and keep children at heart. You know, if I have a bad day and I'm in the office and I've back to back meetings, I've had a parent complaint on the phone, I've got some difficult paperwork that I need to deal with for the local authority or something else is happening. Get out there, be with the children, remind yourself of the why the children are, are, are at the heart of everything we do and they should be at the heart of everything we do. That is our core purpose. So be around the children, enjoy every minute. It's such a privilege, such a privilege to lead a school. And so I think I know the answer to this final question I was going to ask you, but in this world that we live in at this moment in time, would you recommend being ahead? Absolutely. Absolutely. I love every minute, even the, the difficult times. Um, it's, it's an honour to do it. It's an absolute privilege to know that you're making a difference to children's lives, that you're developing your staff. Um, I sit in, in governor's meetings and watch my staff present to my governors. I feel like I'm going to cry like a proud mum, like, oh, my babies, look at them. I'm so proud of them. <laughs> it's like when you watch the Leavers Assembly and you watch the children perform, you see your children thriving. Um, just last year, we got five of our parents into, into work, you know, and we gave them those opportunities of qual qualifications, gave them the confidence. Um, I gave some of them references to apply for primary school jobs, you know, support staff um, jobs in primary schools. To know that you are making a difference in people's lives is just beautiful and you don't get that anywhere else. Um, you know, to go from one minute to a really serious meeting to then playing with a rabbit and watching chicks hatch, <laughs> you know, yeah. it just doesn't happen everywhere. It's a beautiful job and an absolute privilege. I have to say thank you very much. And there's no question why you've been awarded uh, or shortlisted on the TS school awards and i really look forward to following you um on twitter and your journeys that you are going through um as a leader and really recommend just following uh emily on twitter so thank you very much for coming along um really lovely to hear from you and mark earlier in the show and in a world where um there is a lot of things about teaching at the moment and opinions from different areas. It's really lovely to hear the positive messages that both Mark and Emily are sharing that actually teaching and headship in itself is a privilege and children are at the heart of that. So thank you once again for coming and listening to Teacher Talk Radio. Please follow along and listen to more of our shows. Thank you and good night. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.